Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 35. We'll read just the first four verses. theme of this sermon text today is going to be um, uh, both the uh, ongoing reflections on the conversion of the Gentiles, which this passage touches on, and also the work of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, encouraging the church in Antioch and exhorting them to persevere. And uh, that also is reflected in the themes of Isaiah 35. Let's read this together. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived in the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, 
speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to look into um, some of the things that have been written down about uh, our churches, our denominations' uh, approach to foreign missions, um, there are some particular goals that are stated as really central to the way the OPC goes about foreign missions, which I, I think are really good. Um, and those goals are to plant self-supporting, self-sustaining, and self-propagating churches. Think about what those things mean. Self-supporting, self-governing, self-propagating. This is also called the Nevius Method, uh, named after a missionary to China in the 1800s who who didn't want to have the Chinese churches um, just be perpetually depending on Americans and Europeans for funding, for leadership. Instead, he thought that the long-term goal uh, should be for new churches on foreign fields uh, to have their own leaders, to support themselves and each other, and then eventually to become mission-sending churches. Uh, they, shouldn't, they should be uh, developing and sending out foreign missionaries of their own to other places, not just having foreign missions done to them. No, they should start doing missions at home and abroad. That's what it looks like for a church to be mature. Well, now, here in Acts 11... Uh, Of course, the history of foreign missions is just barely getting underway. This is kind of where it all starts, really. Uh, And in Jerusalem, they're they're getting used to the fact still that that the church now includes Gentiles. And and now in the city of Antioch, that new reality is kind of taking shape for the first time in a truly integrated church community uh, outside the boundaries of Israel. And yes, at first, um, that Antioch church is going to depend on Jerusalem in various ways, especially for leadership. But by the end of Acts 11, what's happening in this church? The new church in Antioch isn't leaning on Jerusalem for support at the end of the chapter. They're actually, it's the other way around. They're actually sending support back to Jerusalem. 
What's happening in this whole chapter is that Christ is reorienting the church. He is he's transforming it from a Jerusalem-centered operation to a truly global operation. And that's going to require some adjustments um, in people's understanding, as well as in, the, in just their instincts about how things ought to be. And so as we look at this chapter, I'd like us to see three things happening among these Christians. And the, f- the first one is going to be aligning with Christ's agenda, verses 1 through 18. Number two is investing in Christ's enterprise, verses 19 to 26. And then number three is connecting Christ's community, verses 27 to 30. So aligning with Christ's agenda, investing in Christ's enterprise, and connecting Christ's community. Now, when you read Bible history, uh, I've told you before, there, there are a number of ways that biblical writers can emphasize things as particularly important. And here are two of those main ways. One is by slowing down, slowing down the narrative, uh, kind of zooming in and taking a large amount of space in the book to describe a short space of time. Another way is through repetition, it's through saying the same thing uh, multiple times. If it's repeated, it's important. By both of those measures, the conversion of Cornelius uh, is really important to Luke, quite, quite apparently, because first of all, he devotes a chapter and a half to it, all of chapter 10 and then half of chapter 11, a lot of verses on this story. Also, the, the basic story gets repeated three times. This is Luke's way of saying the conversion of Cornelius, this moment uh, in salvation history where the Gentiles are being included in the church uh, in a public and formal way, is, is super important in the history of the church in general, and it's super important to the message of this book of Acts that he's writing. Of course, every time that those basic elements of the story are repeated, there's a different context, and there's new information as well. And so we want to see what's, what's new here in chapter 11. Um, the reason Peter has to tell the story from the top all over again is because there are some people in Jerusalem who are really quite alarmed to hear that he had had uh, such close interactions with a group of Gentiles. In verse 2, uh, where you see the, the phrase, the circumcision party, uh, you can see in the footnote there, it literally says, those of the circumcision. Um, I think it's a little bit early, really, to say that there was a, a party, per se, advocating for the circumcision of Gentile believers. There will be later, that will develop as the disagreement continues. But the point now is that there were some Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were uncomfortable, even offended, at the idea that Peter would stay at a Gentile's house. He would eat at the same table uh, with that Gentile and his family and friends. Notice they're not so much concerned, at least when, when what they say, they're not so much concerned about uh, Peter preaching to them. Um, you know, we can, we can talk to Gentiles about religion. We've always done that. Jews and Gentiles have been able to talk about religion. But, but Peter, you, you ate with them. That's what really bothers them. You ate with them. Why would you do something like that? And what this is showing is that their identity as followers of Jesus, in their minds, is something that has been kind of overlaid. It's been overlaid on their existing cultural-slash-ethnic-slash-religious identity that they already had before they started following Jesus. 
When they started following Jesus, in their minds, they didn't stop being Jews. They became Jews who now followed Jesus. And in a sense, that that's, that's, uh, was, was natural. And in a sense, there was some truth to that because Jesus was not overturning or rejecting the Old Testament work of God. He was the completion of the Old Testament work of God. He stands in that same stream, the one covenant of grace that's continuing to unfold. But there's a problem with these Jews thinking of themselves in those terms. Um, Because the result was that all of their reservations about intermixing with Gentiles remained, just as they probably really remained for Peter before God gave him that vision, right? Um, And that's why Peter goes back to the beginning here, and he he starts with that vision, uh, which was the way the Lord Jesus reoriented him. And he's making clear, guys, this this was not my idea. This is not something I came up with and thought would be a good idea. Um, You look at verse 7, how he emphasizes this. He says, um, or rather, sorry, verse uh, 17. If God gave them the same, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This is God taking the initiative, God's action here. And notice how the people respond then when Peter finishes. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's kind of interesting, the way they put that. Um, In the book of Acts, the gospel message gets summarized in various ways. And the the call of the gospel gets stated in various ways. Uh, Sometimes it's summarized as a call to faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus, right? Um, Other times, though, it's summarized as a call to repentance, the, the, the call of the gospel is really a call to both, right? Faith and repentance. When you turn to Christ in faith, it means you're turning away from something else. You're turning away from your sin. You reject your sin on the one hand, and you embrace Jesus on the other. And so some, sometimes we summarize that uh, gospel call by telling people to believe in Jesus, but you can also summarize it by saying, Repent, because truly repenting means turning to Jesus, and truly turning to Jesus means turning away from sin. And you can't separate the two. You can't have one without the other. The Jerusalem believers are realizing here, okay, we've turned from our sins to follow Jesus. That's what he did for us. And now let's let's look at these Gentiles. They've they've done exactly the same thing. They've turned from their sins to Jesus. And if we've both turned from the same thing, sin, and we've both turned to the same person, that's Jesus, with the same result, eternal life, well, then it looks like we actually have more, more in common with these new Gentile converts than we thought at first. In fact, maybe we have more in common with them than we have differences. And maybe that commonality is more important, more basic, more fundamental to our identity, our shared identity, than any differences that, that we thought were separating us. And see, what's happening then in the, is the Jerusalem church is being realigned in their whole conception of their own 
their, their selves, their identity. It's all changing. Uh, what the church should look like, what kind of church they ought to be, and then what ought to be done about it practically as a result. As Jewish background believers, they had an agenda, an agenda that sort of came naturally to them. It was part of their upbringing. It was part of their instinctive frame of reference. Part of that agenda is we hold on to our Jewishness. We hold on to what makes us different, to what makes us uh, special. And therefore, what happens is Jesus' agenda, the mission of the church, is something that's kind of stapled on to their existing agenda, the agenda of our heritage, our instincts, our priorities that we came into this with. But what Jesus is doing is he, he is sovereignly saying, okay, let me see that agenda for the church that you've brought with you. He's putting it over here. And he's saying, now, here's my agenda. We're not going to staple them together. This is the mission of the church. This is the kind of church that I am creating. And they look at it and they fall silent. And they glorify God. And they say then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. That leads to life. I want to tell you, this is something we all need to watch out for. This tendency, even today, to treat Christ's agenda for the church as an add-on to our own agenda. Um, it's very easy for us to, to start wanting the church to look and feel a certain way because that's what we're used to. Because these are the kinds of people we're comfortable with. These are the kinds of things that uh, we, we like doing. Um, this is our comfort zone. We need to make sure that our agenda for the church is Christ's agenda. Not one stapled onto our own desires, our own habits, our own cultural baggage. Um, maybe stapled onto... Our, our fear, our fear of reaching out, or our, 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 our reluctance to trade what's easy and familiar for what's hard and uncomfortable. We need to understand that the Lord Jesus is building his church, and the kingdom that is coming is his kingdom. And so we ought to be looking to him, we ought to be looking to his word to make sure that our agenda is his agenda. Now, if the conversion of Cornelius was uh, sort of the official beginning of the mission to the Gentiles, um, the first place that Luke describes that uh, new movement taking place on a bigger scale is in the city of Antioch. Let's think about some geography here. So Antioch is a Syrian city that's pretty much due north of Israel. Um, so you have... If we imagine Israel, we have the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, the Mediterranean with Italy and Greece, and, and Israel on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And so if you go north from Israel, you're still on that eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but far up here to the north, right before it curves around to Turkey or Asia and towards Greece, you have Antioch, um, Syrian Antioch. There's going to be two different Antiochs, by the way, in the book of Acts. They're, they're two different cities that share the same name. This is Syrian Antioch, due north of Israel. There's also going to be another Antioch that's in um, modern-day Turkey. We'll get to that later. For now, we're talking about um, Syrian Antioch. And you remember uh, how when Stephen was martyred and Saul started persecuting the church, uh, many Christians fled away from Jerusalem away from Judea, outside 
the historic land of Israel. And that's what verse 19 is recalling. Uh, Phoenicia, it mentions there, that's the area around Tyre and Sidon, which is just a little bit north of Israel. Uh, Cyprus, um, of course, is that large island in the Mediterranean that's just off of that coast, uh, kind of to the northwest out there in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Cyrene is mentioned uh, in verse 20. That's actually a city in North Africa. It's all the way past Egypt. Um, So basically what this is talking about is believers who had not grown up in the Jewish heartland. And so for that reason, because they hadn't grown up in Israel, perhaps it was a little bit easier for them, a little bit less of a leap to connect with people outside of Antioch's uh, Jewish enclave. What the Lord is doing here is the Lord is still building bridges. Remember that concept of the Lord building a bridge between Jewish and Gentile culture so that the gospel can spread outwards from the Jewish heartland out to places like Antioch. And in verse 19, it says um, that the the first believers getting to Antioch uh, just told other Jewish people, other people uh, with a Jewish background, about the gospel. And that, of course, was a natural place to start. But these other believers who had grown up in the Greek world, in Cyprus and Cyrene and, and so on, well, they think, well, well, why not speak to the Hellenists also? And by Hellenists here, the, word, the term Hellenist here probably just means Greek speakers with the understanding that they are Gentiles. Um, so what's happening here is the gospel is crossing a geographical barrier, it is crossing a language barrier, and it's crossing a cultural barrier. And it is doing that simply through the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. It's doing that through the preaching of the word. Notice that it's Jesus who is the subject matter of the message. It says they were preaching the Lord Jesus, verse 20. It's Jesus who causes that message to make progress, and the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21. And it's also Jesus to whom these Gentiles are turning personally in faith in response to that message, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, the Jerusalem church hears about this. And um, they follow a similar pattern to what they already did before in chapter 8 when the gospel reached Samaria uh, through Philip. Uh, In that case, they sent Peter and John to check things out, set that new church on solid footing. Um, Here, they send Barnabas. Now, Barnabas we met back in chapter 4, where Luke made a special point of giving the translation of his name, saying Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The reason I bring that up is because the Greek word uh, for exhorted them uh, in verse 23 is uh, the same word. Um, Encouragement and exhortation in Greek are the same. uh, It's the same word. Uh, So they they could have easily translated this, he encouraged them. The son of encouragement is encouraging this church. Barnabas is living out his name. He's encouraging, he's exhorting these new believers to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The next thing Barnabas does is he decides to track down Saul so that Saul can come join in this work of leading the church in Antioch as well. This was, this was really part of Barnabas' encouragement to this church. Um, it, it includes identifying and calling in another gifted leader to help in the work. Uh, think also, though, what an encouragement this would have been for Saul, 
um, to have this opportunity to go somewhere where the gospel message is already flourishing and he can work with this experienced and godly man, Barnabas, who has invited him to come along and serve and lead and learn and grow. This is one of the ways that the Lord is preparing the Apostle Paul for his main life's work that's just about to get underway. And you should just think, what if Barnabas hadn't ever gone to look for Saul? What if he never went to Tarsus? What if Saul had just stayed in Tarsus indefinitely because nobody ever reached out to him to call him to come along and engage in this work and to help you kind of come alongside Saul in that work side by side? I'm calling this second point investing in Christ's enterprise. Because in in Antioch, here's what you don't see. What you don't see is uh, the sort of Jerusalem brass uh, spreading out a big map on the table in the war room and saying, all right, everybody, here's what we're going to do. Operation Antioch. Let's go go plant a church in Antioch. We're going to start a revival in this city. We're going to schedule it for, you know, August 16th. And um, we're going to get a new church off the ground. Once again, Luke is very deliberate about showing how this is Christ's work. Christ is the content of the message. Christ is the power behind the message. Christ is the person the new believers are turning to follow. Barnabas goes to Antioch because the church recognizes, look at what Christ is doing. What hath God wrought? As Numbers 23 puts it, or like the psalm we sang earlier, it says, come and see what God has done. Christ Christ doesn't call on Barnabas and say, hey, I'd I'd really like you to figure out how to start a church in Antioch. It's it's more like he tells him, look at this church I've started in Antioch. I'll go encourage them and strengthen them and serve them and, and give yourself to them and love them and help them find new leadership. I love what Jesus tells his disciples in John 4 when he says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He tells them, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, he says, and you have entered into their labor. And so Christ does not, um, in other words, Christ, Christ, we, we ought to uh, strategize, we ought to plan, we ought to think carefully and be energetic and proactive about missions and evangelism and so on. But what we have to understand is that Christ does not give us the burden of building the church by our own creativity, by our own strategy, by our own persuasiveness, by our own power. Because if it depended on those things, it would never happen. The church would never get built. We have to understand that the church, foundationally, is not our enterprise. Fundamentally, it is Christ's enterprise. But you see, the joy of being a Christian is that you get to invest yourself in that enterprise, confident that it is going to thrive because it's the work of the Almighty King Jesus. And rejoice because you get to be a part of it. That's motivating. You get to be part of an endeavor that you know is succeeding in the long run. And so how can we do that? How can we invest ourselves in what Christ is doing through the church with the gospel? Well, for an example, look at what Barnabas does. He says, I'm going to encourage these people. I'm going to exhort them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Like Isaiah 35 said, I'm going to strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. 
I'm going to nurture and cultivate these seedlings that Christ, Christ has caused to grow. I'm going to go into his garden as his servant, and I'm going to see that it gets watered and weeded and, and harvested. And not just that, this is important. The other thing Barnabas does is he says, I'm, I'm going to bring someone else along with me. And I want to ask, when was the last time many of you serve faithfully and energetically many people, many ways in the church? I want to ask you, when was the last time that you invited a younger Christian to join you in some area of service? Not just to do it yourself. When was the last time you got someone else to come along with you to give them an opportunity to serve alongside you, to learn how practically to invest themselves in Christ's enterprise as Barnabas did for Saul. Something to think about. Uh, Before we go on to the last point, I just want to point out something about verse 26. Uh, Antioch is the first place, Luke says, that the disciples were first called Christians. Um, And that's much more than a piece of trivia. When you bake a cake, you start out with eggs and flour and sugar and butter, but when it comes out of the oven, you don't call it egg, flour, sugar, butter thing. You call it a cake, right? Because now it's something new. Um, Before this time, people in the Roman world looking at first-generation believers would have seen basically Jews uh, following a particular variation of Jewish religion, but still, they're Jews. But in Antioch, you can't really do that anymore, right? Because now you have people with no Jewish background at all as part of the church, And they haven't become Jewish. They've simply started following Christ. They've turned from their sin, and they've trusted in Jesus. They've turned to Jesus, not Judaism. And so now there's a seed. uh, Sorry, so now there's a need, rather. Now there's a need for a new name to call this new thing. What do you call somebody who follows Christ? Well, you call them a Christian, a Christian, uh, regardless of their background. Now they're all in this common category. They're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, finally, and just to wrap up, what we see at the end is Christ now forging a bond between these two churches in two very different cities, composed of two very different kinds of groups of people, Antioch and Jerusalem. We want to ask, how does Christ bring those cities together? How does he forge a bond between them so that it's not really two churches, but one church in two different places? And the answer is, He does it through suffering. That's interesting, isn't it? There's this acute need that arises with the impending famine. You might expect at that point that the mother church, Jerusalem, would think, oh, we need to send help to our daughter church in Antioch. But that's actually not what happens. It's the other way around, isn't it? Remember, what's that goal of foreign missions? It's not to create new churches that are going to depend perpetually on the mission-sending church. No, the goal is to create mature churches that can bless other parts of the church. And so in this case, the need is going to be in Jerusalem. And the mission church is the one that sends back. And so what at first seems like a great burden and problem for the church turns out actually to be that blessed tie that binds together their hearts in Christian love. And it only makes sense that that would be Christ's tool for binding the church together that it would be sacrifice, that it would be self-giving generosity, it would be entering into the suffering of the other, because, of course, that's exactly the way that Christ bound himself to us and us to himself. It was by entering into our suffering. It was by giving himself for us, by sacrificing 
his life for ours as he was crucified so that we could be forgiven, as he was raised from the dead so that we could have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that was being proclaimed in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And now here from Antioch to Jerusalem, you see that gospel getting lived out. Earlier we were praying about that OPC church in Kentucky, um, devastated by the huge floods last week. And our whole church right now is mobilizing to, to help that church in Kentucky and, and the people around them. And that's just one of many examples of, of the opportunities that are there for the church to come together through suffering, through sacrifice, through sharing and entering into one another's suffering. That's what we want to be doing in the church locally and uh, extended church throughout the world, because that's the shape of the gospel, because that's what Christ has done for us, and that is Christ's agenda for knitting his church together in love. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that those who are far off you have brought near through the blood of Christ. We thank you that you have made us both one and that you have broken down the middle wall of separation and that you've made peace. Um, And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, knit our hearts together in love um, through the gospel, through our common faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would teach us to let go of our own agendas, our own desires, our own comfort and ease and um, instincts where they do not match what your word is teaching us is your plan for the church. And um, we ask that you would uh, strengthen us energetically. Have our our hands occupied with the work that Christ has given us to do. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.